Welcome to Phoenix and Flame, pushing through and transforming even when you feel like a pile of ash. This podcast is not intended for use as psychotherapy. If you feel you are in crisis, please call 911 or contact your local crisis hotline. Welcome to Phoenix and Flame. I'm Dana, and this is my podcast on pushing through and transforming even when you feel like a pile of ash. Today, we have a wonderful guest with us. His name is Zane Landon. Zane is from Chino, California, and he's worked at places like USAID, NASA, and General Motors. He is a mental health and disability advocate, a queer rights activist, entrepreneur, and positive change maker. He identifies as Hispanic, queer, and disabled. He is the founder of Positive Vibes Magazine, a digital magazine dedicated to telling authentic stories about mental health, wellness, and inspiration. He's also the founder and president of Landing Dreams PR, a consulting business working with media and mental health advocates. He attended the first ever Mental Health Youth Action Forum in Washington, D.C., where he met President Biden, Selena Gomez, Dr. Murthy, and Dr. Biden. Zane, that sounds wonderful. Welcome to Phoenix and Flame. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dana. This is wonderful. You know, I am, first of all, I want to say that as I was reading your bio, I'm really drawn to how you describe that your digital magazine is dedicated to telling authentic stories mm-hmm. about mental health. And that's a lot of what Phoenix and Flame is about, is about you know, being authentic, being real, because mm-hmm. there's so many people out there that are living in pain, but they're, they're putting on the face. And we all do that for different reasons, because there has to be a safe place to be able to share our pain. But that's one of the reasons why I developed Phoenix and Flame. I'm a therapist myself. And so I hear the Ooh. stories. I hear what people are going through. And so they would say to me, Dana, I just feel so alone. But I would know they're not alone because I got to hear all these other stories because I provide a safe place for people to talk about their true feelings. But my patients sometimes, you know, they're not going to know that. And so that was one of my initial motivations for for starting my podcast was to create a community where we could be authentic. We could be real. We could be honest and say things that we might not say out, you know, just to Joe Blow, but that we can listen to the the episodes and realize, you know what, gosh, that person, they were talking about feeling exactly the way I feel. They're going through exactly what I'm going through. So we can have that authenticity and, and reach out together. So that's fantastic. So how did you first get drawn to this whole area of mental health? When I was born, (laughs) I think, uh, you know, uh, I experienced, you know, mental health conditions from a very young age, probably by the time I was five or six, very young. I, I'm going to say five or six, because that's kind of the point where I had a little bit of recollection <laughs> back probably before I don't really m- remember too much. But, you know, around that age is when I remember being, you know, having intense anger, depression, anxiety, probably more than a child should have. I still, I also had problems with socializing with other kids, um, controlling my emotions, I was on a 504 plan in school, not only for schoolwork, but, you know, having a, like a therapist to talk about my emotions. I had one at school. I also had one outside of school that I saw from around the end of grammar school to the end of high school. So a very long journey of 
going through professional psychological help. And then, you know, when I went to university, I didn't see that psychologist anymore. I wasn't seeing any. Um, and there was kind of a moment in time where there was a lot of things going on. I can get into more detail about it, but, you know, there was just a lot of different things happening in my life and I couldn't control it. Even though I learned and managed a long time ago and I learned these tools, I say a long time ago, but I mean like dead of high school, it's only like three years after though. Um, I think that sometimes we don't anticipate how bad it can get and it's never been that bad before. So I was engaging in self-harm. I was mm -hmm. like physical self-harm. I had frequent thoughts of suicide all of the time. Uh, it was it was very scary because it was, I was in a very good place of like euphoria, but also a very bad place. It's really interesting. Um, and so I had to withdraw from that semester because I wasn't doing well. I just couldn't handle anything almost at that point. Was this in uh, high school or in college when you withdrew? College. This was my, my third year in university. Okay. So then that semester, I kind of reinvented myself. That's when I became more of a serious advocate. So before, I just kind of had the lived experience, knew about the community, knew about mental health, but I didn't consider myself an advocate. It's just not something I wanted to go into. It's not really the path I thought I would want to go into. And then, <laughs> then at the time, I joined the Access and Disability Alliance. Uh, I withdrew from the semester. I feel like everything kind of was set in stone, and I was kind of moving towards being an advocate. Then after that happened, I was like, this moment kind of happened where I was like, I feel so alone, but the more I'm reading about these people and organizations I'm involving myself in, this is actually a very normal feeling, but we don't treat it as such. So I mm -hmm. thought like that was my inspiration was I need to continue this because for one, I don't want people to experience what I did. And this is a huge community that I've been a part of my whole life and I want to do something about it because I, again, I had the lived experience, but I never experienced it like that. Well, let me ask you, Zane. I noticed that our local paper here is is doing this big spread on uh, mental health with children and adolescents, and they're doing sort of like a, a multi. I don't know. What, they're doing it for several weeks. It's just mm -hmm. it's kind of going on and on, and, and you have yes, and so they're really kind of emphasizing and, and, and interviewing different um, youth mm. and, and having them kind of with anonymity so they can be right. very honest without feeling like they're being exposed. And so it's, it's interesting reading these, these articles and hearing the young people talk about the pressure and the stress and different interpersonal issues that they're going through. And so I'm always kind of wondering, you know, could you take us more in, inside your experience of what it was like for you? Because I'm thinking if there's some people out there listening, number one, if they are going through that themselves, they would say, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what I'm going through right now. Or they might be on the other side of it. They might happen to be in a position where they're on the other side and they're possibly behaving not in a great way towards someone who's experiencing Mm -hmm. these symptoms and don't really realize it. They don't really realize how their behavior is impacting someone. So I really like to hear people's stories so we can have understanding and, and toward one another and have compassion toward one another. So you want me to explain like my university or as a kid? Wherever you want to start is fine with me. Cause I think we're going to get some good stuff either way. Yeah. I mean, I went, to, I went into a little detail about university, so I'll go into more of like a, my experience as a child. I, I really think that I was uh, what you call the uh, <laughs> highly sensitive person, if you've heard that term. Yes. Um, so I definitely 
do view myself that way. And I think that the sensitivity was kind of shamed at times. You know, like sometimes when I was very sensitive or very upset by something, I was, instead of being told like, I hear you and like, I understand what you're experiencing, I was kind of told, you're just too sensitive. Mm. And I think that that isn't a good thing to say. And I understand why some people say it, but like, I don't think it's a good thing to say because it's like kind of pushing your feelings out the window in a way, right? And so I thought that there was something wrong with me every time I was upset. Instead of it being, maybe someone upset me. But sometimes maybe the, maybe being, me being upset, I did take out proportion sometimes, but not every time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, but since I kind of grew to understand my sensitivity is a, a bad thing, every single time I was upset by something, I didn't want to express it. And so again, emotional suppression, which is a very common thing, especially in men. Um, that's a you know very common thing. And, you know, we know what happens with emotional suppression. <laughs> we know that it can make people more aggressive. It can actually impact their cardiovascular system. It can do like a lot of physiological effects, not even just the emotional aspect, but, you know, it can actually change their outlook. It could change their health, a lot of different things. So anyways, so that's kind of the stuff that that's like one of the big things that I experienced. Um, you know, again, I had a hard time making friends because sometimes, again, I'd be hyper-emotional or I'd be really sensitive and people just didn't take that seriously. So that is the big aspect of what I experienced. And again, all that circling and bubbling just makes you feel worse. So it just kind of kept getting worse and worse. And so, again, I think what helped me the most is, you know, seeing a psychologist and actually learning how to address my emotions and actually having that person that I could say, I'm upset by this. I This is what upset me. And then they would give me that support that I needed and also give me the practical tools that I can take away from the session. So when I'm in that situation, I don't feel as bad or I don't feel like it's my fault. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So um, I really am, am enjoying how you're describing this. And I, a couple of things come to my mind. One of them is that emotion is going to come out one way or the other. So, you know, we can either choose to express it on our own terms, which sometimes that's not met positively, like you're describing, yeah. or we can shove it inside and it's going to come out on its own. And lots of times it does come out physically. It'll come out in a stomach upset, ulcerative colitis, GERD, um, irritable bowel syndrome, migraine headaches. I mean, there's a lot of research on what happens to us when we're in situations where we don't feel safe or comfortable externalizing and venting and expressing our emotions and our thoughts and we cram them inside and we don't let them out. There's no safe place. So I'm so glad to hear you said that you were able to, at least on some level, you know, you had a therapist along the way because sometimes people's family members aren't particularly helpful. You would like to think that family would be a safe place to go to, but unfortunately in some instances, family contributes to the problem rather than providing a safe place. And of course, then you have different family members that can be very different in their response. You could have one family member that was very uh, affirming and, and, and supportive and comforting. And then you might have another one that is really critical and judgmental and harmful. So it's trying to find some place to go. So who were your, you said you had a therapist and did you have anybody else that you were able to turn to, to, to have that safe place? Well, I mean, yeah, my mother, <laughs> um, I feel like m- my mom definitely always listened to me, everything I had to say. Um, even though sometimes she, <laughs> she, uh, was sometimes the one that was a little 
little critical about being sensitive, but that wasn't all the time. I'm not. I, I didn't want to paint it like that was always the situation, but it happened at times. Mm-hmm. And I, and I also want to say, you know, parents try their best. You know, my mom was there for me for everything. So, you know, there are times where parents are trying their best. So I, there's no, like anger about that there's no resentment about that at all um at all you know i my mom did the best she could and again it wasn't that wasn't as bad as you know some other families and my mom was the reason i saw a therapist in the first place because she was the one who pushed it and she was the one that also navigated that shame that people experience and it's not like she could tell people what was going on with her kids or anything because sometimes when it comes to mental health we have a hard time telling other people you know about that and so there's that, and then just kind of pushing through that and saying, "No, I'm gonna get my I'm gonna get my kids psychological help, no matter what people think." I will say that, and then, but again, that's my experience. For some families, that's not the experience, and sometimes with families, they did do harm to their to their children, and that is an issue. And for some, they do have resentment, and I, I do feel bad for people who have had to be in households where they weren't supported or they were treated so much more harshly than. Than many other kids and mm-hmm. and then you see what happens when that happens like you know children finally can grow up and then they may become addicted to alcohol or drugs or they weren't able to process or deal with the stuff that they grew up with and they have this like unprocessed trauma and it comes out in many ways physically and then also you know emotionally and that's why you have people who might die by suicide and i mean there's many many factors and that go into all this but i'm just saying that these things do contribute to it. So parents have to be aware that sometimes the way they raise their kids and the way they treat them can contribute to their future self-esteem issues or suicide. And I'm not putting all the blame on the parents. It's not obviously just the parents' fault. But again, I think parents do hold a big responsibility because again, we don't children don't experience society first. They experience the household and the parents first. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it starts. And that's like the most important part. Then they'll be exposed to society and They'll definitely be shaped that way but again the first place you start is you know your household or, or wherever you start you know that's it and you know of course i'm totally biased and i admit this openly but i i think everyone should have a therapist i mean i've had one myself at different times along the way and i am a therapist you know i mean we, but we're all people first right and so whether we're a, a parent or or not or whatever i think that life can be really really hard and sometimes harder than others. And if even if you're in a phase that's relatively easy, I guarantee you a hard phase is coming. And so a therapist is some somebody to go to that just na- helps you navigate through life. And what I heard you say earlier was really that you had a you were very sensitive, that you felt like you were, you know, one of those highly sensitive people. And I have that book, you know, the highly sensitive person. Um And so it's a totally legit thing of how a highly sensitive person perceives their environment and perceives the world. And so what I'm hearing you say is when going to a therapist, a psychologist helped you kind of identify how you could develop coping strategies to manage your own perceptions and your own feelings and how you wanted to respond to that. Because unfortunately we can't control how other people are going to receive our behavior. It's like that it would be nice if, if every place was safe and people understood and they were compassionate and empathetic, but unfortunately that that's not the case sometimes. And so 
when the people around us don't really like what we're doing, they don't understand it. Sometimes they're critical. Sometimes they're judgmental. Sometimes they're just mean. Let's just be honest about that. Sometimes they're just mean, especially kids. So I was kind of wondering when you look back at your times of spent with your, your psychologist and your therapist, can you remember anything, maybe one or two things that you learned along the way that you felt like was really helpful in managing your own thoughts and feelings and and having to navigate the society, like you mentioned, that we kind of launch into from our family unit, we launch into society. What are a couple of things that you remember that you found particularly helpful in this navigation that you were doing? A couple of things. One of them was to breathe (laughs) and that we don't focus on our breath. And what I mean by that is when we breathe, it's just out of instincts, out of um, out of survival mode, <laughs> but sometimes when we focus on our breath, we're like putting all of our energy into that one place, and then kind of taking yourself away from whatever it is that was frustrating you. And it's not going to make it go away, of course, but it's kind of just giving you this this place to focus on instead of focusing on your anger. It's like in a way taking yourself away from it. Um, and again, that's not avoiding it, but it's kind of putting yourself in that mindset where you're focusing on it. So you're kind of relaxing yourself. Uh, another thing is just walk away. <laughs> that's something I thought I found that's actually really powerful <laughs> that if you're in a negative space or you're dealing with someone that's negative, just say, I need to go. I'm no, I mean, you can't do that. Obviously maybe like in a classroom or something, <laughs> but like if you're hanging out with someone or maybe it's a parent and it's a very negative or it's very heated, just say, I need to go. I'm going to my room, close my door. Um, I, don't want to deal with this right now because and I understand that that's like frustrating, just if you're, you know, having a conversation, but it's like, I need to just walk away for a second. Cause I'm not in a good head space and I'm not going to contribute in a very productive way anyways, because I'm really emotional right now. Um, and sometimes people can get offended by that, but you know what? Take care of yourself first. <laughs> um, and then the third thing is just journal. I know journal is like a thing I hear a lot of people say, mm-hmm. but I think it's actually absolutely important. It was for me. I remember, journaling my thoughts um and it helped a lot especially when i was in high school because um i was i was really into writing and i got really into writing my senior year (laughs) towards the end though but i was really passionate about writing poetry and i had a journal where i would write down words that would inspire me and they could be anything the definition or even the way the words sounded even if it had nothing to do with like anything i just loved the way it sounded then i would also jot my emotions down and how i felt when i heard that word um, and so that really helped me process my emotions better and also gave me a good headspace of when I would write, I'm like, I remember this word and I remember how I felt when I heard this word. So when I was writing, it kind of allowed me to clear my head a bit. If that made sense. If that makes sense. So I think generally helped me a lot. Cause again, sometimes we can't talk to people about our emotions, not all mm-hmm. of our raw emotions. Mm-hmm. We can't tell everyone about that. It's, I, I think it's great to be vulnerable, but you cannot be vulnerable with everyone. You cannot no. just go up to a random stranger and start pouring. You. There's always there's always that joke in shows where people do that. It's like, it's actually very, I think it's an issue. I don't think you should be doing that to people. Um, <laughs> like, I understand you want to just, you want it out. But I think sometimes it's like, write it down then. Or send yourself a letter of what you're feeling. And I know that that's like, we hear that, but it really, it's helped me a lot. And I think it can help a lot more people. That's, I mean, I love what you're saying. I mean, because I call those the tender bits, you know, we have the tender bits inside and I think we have to vet people for safety. And I think, you know, just any old Joe Blow doesn't have the right to have access to our tender bits 
And so you can be cordial with someone, but in order for them to earn, and I think absolutely they have to earn the right to be, to have access to our tender bits, our, our parts inside that, that are really close to the core of who we are. So it's up to us really, like you're saying, to, to vet people and to make sure that they are a safe person to be able to share things with, because not everybody is safe to do that. Yeah. And I think also there's like two things you have to think about. (laughs) I think also you want to make sure that they don't take advantage of you. Cause I think that that can happen. Like, again, I think when you put yourself out there and you're vulnerable, sometimes you have to be careful with who you're talking to because you don't know what they're going to do with that information. Mm-hmm. They might, they might use that to hurt you one day. And I don't want people to become suspicious of others, but it's just like, yeah, in a way you have to be, because I've definitely in, in my case, connect with people really quickly and I accidentally overshare and that's not good for them because they feel uncomfortable and then they'll use the information to hurt me later. So it's like, you kind of have to assert your own boundaries and it, it's hard though, because especially when you have mental health and you feel so alone and you actually do connect with someone you might overshare because it's mm-hmm. like, wow, I actually connect with this person. You have to like step back though. Be like, no, no, wait, I don't even know them. And I don't want to make them, them uncomfortable and they have every right to be uncomfortable. If I'm telling them personal stuff that, and we just met, <laughs> you know, so you have to make sure you're safe. You have to make sure you're creating a safe space for them when you're sharing. Cause again, you don't want to make them uncomfortable and you don't want to ruin a potential friendship or relationship because you connected. I hope that makes sense. It does. It makes a hundred percent sense. There's actually some people that, that kind of do that on purpose because they're trying to sabotage the relationship. That's not what you're describing at all, but the, the impact is very similar. I've talked to people before they've had really bad experiences in relationships. And so they just dump it all out there really fast because they're convinced the person's going to leave them anyway. So they're like, okay, you know what? Let me just tell you everything right now. Blah, da, 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 da. And this happened and that happened. I'm this and that and this and that and this and that. And then they're like, okay, so might as well leave now. Cause I know you're going to leave anyway. And so it, it's sort of a sabotage because that's not how relationships are organically supposed to unfold. We're not supposed to do that dumping. And I think also it could be that they're so sabotaging and in a way they feel like they're protecting themselves, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's oh. like, I'm protecting myself from future hurt. So I'm going to just end it now. Cause I don't want to experience the hurt, which I think is sad. Cause maybe it could have been great, you know, mm-hmm. that's it. A hundred percent. And I wanted to point out something you said earlier mm-hmm. about setting boundaries. Cause I, I don't know if you're probably not aware of this, but I'm, I'm known as the queen of boundaries because it's just like, it's my jam. I mean, it's, I just am very excited about it. I see it. And I really started f- from my own childhood and my own life. I'm not going to get into all of that right now, but mm-hmm. I saw it a lot in my private practice, like virtually, I would say at least 75% of the issues that people had brought to me. Once we had a moment to hover over it and unpack it, you're looking at several boundary issues that are causing this problem. And what I I said, what I heard you say earlier was that when you're in a relationship and somebody is, you know, talking to you and they're saying something that's hurtful and sometimes you just walk away, you know, sometimes you just say no. And that's, that's a form of a boundary. That's, that's you knowing that you have the right that if you're in a relationship with someone and they begin saying something or treating you in some kind of way that is hurtful, that you have the right to say, I'm not going to continue this conversation. And you can literally just walk away or say, 
you know, I want to talk about something else. I don't want to talk about this anymore. And that's a very empowering um, knowledge that you have that ability to do that anywhere that you go, that, that right to say no. Yeah. I think that it's interesting. We can understand our personal space that when someone invades our physical personal space, it feels invasive. And we can say, uh, give me some space. Give me a proximity of space so I can actually breathe. That seems easy, right? But it seems like the like the emotional boundaries is the difficult thing, which is, I don't want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to engage in this. I don't. I I'm going to say no to this. And sometimes, you know, this is why I think sometimes when I see the trend of self care, it's like self care is taking care of yourself and treating yourself well. Yeah. Sometimes when you sometimes true self care is about the longevity, and it's about you might need to cut someone off. And that could be incredibly hurtful for you because you don't want to do that mm-hmm. and it might hurt them. But again, if they're, if they're like green out such a toxic side of you or they're making you feel terrible about yourself, borderline abusive almost in a way, it's like, yeah, cutting them off can be incredibly hard. Um, but from the scope of self-care, I think that that is self-care. Sometimes self-care is making these ultimately really hard decisions. Sometimes it's not about just taking care of yourself. I mean, that's ultimately what it is, but in that moment, it may not feel like that at all. You know, sometimes you have to like endure somewhat a little pain for your self-care. That's, I think the self-care that we don't hear about, which is that those boundaries, right? And that's a boundary that you have to do sometimes, which is maybe move, maybe get a new job. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that's so scary for, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm coming from a place where I'm just saying that that's possible. But for me, if I were in that situation, I felt stuck. I, I don't know if it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be easy at all. So I'm not telling people it's easy. I'm just saying that that's what real self-care is, in my opinion, is looking at your life and thinking, am I really taking care of myself? I may I may take care of myself throughout the day, but like, are my circumstances and my surroundings taking care of me? Is this a place where I can be my best self, my most happy, my most healthy? And again, you don't always have to be your best self all the time, but are your are you allowing yourself to be your best self and your environment and people pulling you down? If that's what's happening, then sometimes you do have to kind of make a change. Again, I'm not saying it because it's easy. I'm saying that's actually incredibly hard. So that's why I think real self-care is. Everything, retweet, whatever. <laughs> Everything that you just said. I mean, absolutely. Ditto, ditto, ditto. I mean, I love everything you said. You know, I'm kind of wondering too, you mentioned earlier about having to kind of take a step back when you were in college and you were kind of at that phase of your life and sort of evaluating what was going on with you. And I'm noticing too, you also have in your, your bio information that your writing that you, you kind of mentioned earlier, a little bit of that, but you said your Mm -hmm. writing has appeared on over 50 platforms like seek the joy Mm -hmm. podcast, Forbes, Buzzfeed and coming from the heart. I'm curious as to kind of where your life led you from college on and what is it that these these different platforms, what they wanted from you, what it was that you were producing that they really were drawn to? Well, I will say, I think I actually put my writing, but I meant to say that I w- I've been featured on those platforms. But my, so my story has been featured. I didn't necessarily write those stories. I was like interviewed or someone asked me, but my writing has appeared in Entrepreneur, Power Positivity, different platforms about wellness and mental health. My goal is to, to be able to write for Thrive Global, if you've ever heard of them. They're, you know, I think they're a technology company, but they have a really, really sensible blog about wellness and workplace health and culture, which I think is really important. What those platforms bring is just 
what I'm looking to spread, which, you know, some of their platforms are about seek the joy, great platform. They actually are not doing the platform anymore. They just kind of announced that they're not doing the platform, but it was great that they are kind of doing what you're doing. They're giving a highlight to people that have these authentic truths and stories and stories we don't get to hear. And even when we do hear about mental health in the media, sometimes it's not good. Sometimes it's really negative. And then sometimes it's also kind of glossed over. Mm-hmm. That's um, you know, I was, I was, th- I was thinking about, you know, the, the recent tragedy with, you know, Ellen's DJ. And it's just kind of like, I have a lot of thoughts about that. For one, for me, I'm not going to sound sensitive, but I, I wasn't really shocked. When something Are you like talking about happened. Twitch? Yeah. Okay. And I was saying, I wasn't, I wasn't really shocked. Again, I don't know him. I'm sure the people around him were very shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not shocked that that happens because like literally people die by suicide every single minute, you know, like it's suicide is so common at this point. I'm not necessarily shocked anymore. When I, I see that it's a very tragic thing. What I need, what I, what I hear is that we need to talk about this a lot more mm-hmm. We need to create this space, especially for children. Like how do we engage children with mental health from a very young age? And I love the series that your local paper is doing because again, I think that waiting to talk about mental health when you're a young adult, when you've experienced all this when you were a kid, it's a lot to process and a lot to deal with. Um, so if there's a way to engage children better with mental health in a way that's, you know, healthy, not intrusive, you know, ways that, you know, for children to actually um, learn from it. So it's not too personal or whatever it is, you know? So there's that. And then I think we just need to listen more. Not, I'm not going to use him as an example, but we'll hear. I never saw the signs. I didn't see that there was anything wrong. There was a show I really enjoyed, which was Degrassi. Um, in season 12, they had a whole depression s- storyline. And at the end of the season, a character does die by suicide. And a lot, of people were, a lot of people were shocked. But, like, if you actually do watch the story, and you see his, you see him alone, though, but there are times where he says stuff, where he's, he constantly says he's sad. People just didn't take it seriously. And it's just like we're not maybe listening and taking people's people's emotions seriously. So maybe people do reach out for help. Maybe it's not a crisis like we think it is, but maybe they say one day, "I'm just having a hard, I'm having a hard life. And I don't know what to do." That maybe we're not taking that seriously, or we do, and then they get they get some help, and then they seem better, and we think it's over. Um, so again, I think there's a lot of things that you know we can be doing, and I find it. I find it interesting about, you know, Twitch because people are talking about suicide. But again, I, I see that a lot of people are talking about suicide and they're just like sharing resources. That's what I see. I, I wish I would see more people openly talk about it personally again. But I don't want to pressure people because, again, I know it's really traumatic. Not everyone wants to. But, you know, I do. <laughs> and so I'm open about it. And so I even I, d- I did a couple of postings. I usually don't. But I did postings on Instagram where I said, as someone who has been very open about it, who has almost attempted several times, I get it. And we can't stop talking about it. I, what I really makes me sad, and I have gripes with this, is when there's some event that happens, whatever it is, some big event, and it and it kind of ripples, it has this ripple effect where people are, are passionate about the issue now. You know, like people are talking about suicide and mental health right now because of an event. But then in a couple of weeks, people stop talking about it. And the momentum kind of dies. I think that we have to kind of quit doing that. <laughs> I understand that everyone's passionate about it like I am, but, you know, I wish we would talk more about this stuff all the time. So it's this ongoing movement, this ongoing conversation, rather than 
address it after it happens. We can't be just reactive. Come on, we got to be proactive too. So we can't just be reactive to when someone dies by suicide. We have to be proactive in getting children help. And again, for people who say they don't know, at this point, it's an, it's real though. Um, and again, people die all the time by suicide. So we definitely need to be a little more proactive and get people the help that they need. I hope this all makes sense. And it was a little ranty. <laughs> no, I mean, if anything deserves a rant, it's that. And I mean, I didn't hear you as ranty at all. I, I hear you as very informative. And as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, I'm one of these people that I like to think about, okay, how, how are we going to actually make this apply? How are we going to make it actually work? Because I think so much we think about institutional stuff. We think agencies and, you know, um, all these large kind of things. We need to get down to individual people. Mm. For example, I think some people are scared because they're afraid if somebody brings up something like that, they, they think, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I don't know how to answer their question. I don't know how to solve their problem. And so they just try to skirt around it and they kind of shut the person down. I'm going to put out there and say, first of all, back to my bias, I think having a therapist should be very normalized. I think you, you should have one all the time. And, and you don't have to go all the time, but just at least have one that where you somebody that where they know your story, they know your personality. So whenever you're you're going through a hard time, you can go see them and just click right back because they they know all your background. It's just a wonderful thing to do. But yeah. beyond that, though, I really think, and I would encourage people that if someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm 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 really having a really hard time. You know, all you need to say is possibly say, wow do you want to talk about it or just tell me, tell me about it. You don't have to solve their problem. You don't have yeah. to have the answers. And I think that's something that, that we all can do that you can do that. I can do that. Listeners. Are you hearing us? Are you hearing Zane? Are you hearing myself? If some, cause that's when, that's where this transformation is going to take place. That's where the revolution is going to take place. It's not going to take place in an office. It's not going to take place in DC. It's going to take place with individuals like you and me. And when someone comes up to us and says something like that, that we give them a space and you know what? It's okay that you don't know how to fix their problem. It's okay that you're not a therapist. All you need to say possibly is just, wow, do you want to talk about it? And just sit there with your lips together and let them talk. You don't have to say anything. Just give them space and let them talk. That's it. And who, who can't do that? We all can do that. You don't have to have the answer. You don't have to run scurrying away because you're scared that you're, I'm not a therapist. I'm not going to know what to say. I don't know how their answer. I don't, I don't have to fix their problem. No, you don't. You don't have to. Just, just say, wow, that sounds tough. Talk about it. Tell me about it. And put your lips together. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I align so much with that because I always tell people, you are not a fixer. And and even for the people that are scared they don't know how to fix problems, but I know people, also the opposite end, where they're like, I can fix people's problems. Like, I know how to deal with issues. And so if someone comes up to me, I'll fix their issues. No, that may not be exactly what they need at all. You might actually make it worse. Also, it depends on what they're looking for. If they're really looking for your advice, then sure, give your advice. But then sometimes they just need a listening person. So don't come in thinking that you need to solve everything. Because for one, I, I don't think you need to do that. Um, 
again because i feel like that's so much pressure on the person thinking that i have to fix our problems you don't it's not your job and that's a lot of that's a lot of baggage you're going to carry if you think you have to do that for everyone because i know people that describe themselves as fixers and they help people and it's like that's great but also you have to not understand sometimes people don't need that in that moment sometimes people just need someone to listen to them and mm-hmm. that could be the most affirming validating feeling that it's like wow someone's actually listening they're not telling me they're not screwing off like you said they're not telling me what i need to do to fix myself they're just listening and i know i can come to them if i ever need that and then sometimes they can even go further than that and saying like instead instead of just listening well in addition to listening you ask you know now that i know this how can i show up for you like what can i do to support you again i don't have all the answers but you know what is it that you need that i can do for you um, and I think that's important because sometimes that person may not even know. You know, I feel like sometimes it's hard to artic- articulate what our needs are in that moment because we're we're frustrated or we're, you know, we're actually able to pour out our emotions. And it's like, what do I need in this moment? And people forget to think, what do you need? You know, a lot of times we think what we need, but I think sometimes we have to sit down and be like, this is what I need. These are the boundaries I have to set. This is what's going to make me feel better. Um, and so, you know, I feel like someone asking that, it's like, wow. I don't know, but I do appreciate you showing up though and talking to me. So those are my thoughts too, that, you know, sometimes it's even just great to ask, you know, if it's open, if they're open to it, like, how can I support you? How can I show up for you? What can I do for you? Um, instead of, you know, you inserting yourself and trying to give them advice, just, just being their support system. That may, that may be you doing nothing. Maybe when, maybe they'll never come to you for something like something like, or to talk again, but you know that since you opened up that conversation, it's always there, mm-hmm. you know, and you do your part and you can reach out to them. But again, if, if they don't want to talk or, you know, um, or they don't engage, you never know what's going on. So I would say, you know, always try and be there for them. Um, but I'm going to say this too, because I don't say this at all, actually, just something I'm thinking about. You also have to think, you also, have, you also have to take care of yourself because sometimes I see Sometimes I see mental health postings where it says people support mental health until that person has a breakdown or that person's suicidal or that person is incredibly angry. I don't agree with that. But there are certain things I've seen where it's like you'll support mental health until like they're screaming at you or they're, you know, doing horrible stuff and you can't handle it. Well, this is my personal opinion. If someone does have mental health conditions and they are being abusive, or they are treating you really badly. I think sometimes you can try and support them, but sometimes you have to, again, you have to set a boundary mm-hmm. because again, it's nice. It's, it's a good thing that you want to support them and they, they definitely have mental health conditions, but like if they're being abusive or they're being toxic, I don't think there's anything wrong with you just saying, I, I need to go. Like I can't be in this environment. You can still maybe support them from afar and maybe still support them in any, as, in other ways. But yeah, I think that there's a borderline where it's like we can't excuse that kind of behavior because of mental health either. You know, and the person on the receiving end, let's not paint them as someone that's not supporting them or unsupportive when they're trying to take care of themselves too. Because again, if we say that they're not supporting mental health by enduring that, well, we're going against the whole self-care culture we're trying to create too then, right? Uh, well, that's it. That's, I mean, saying that's exactly right because what you're describing is enabling. Because if we're... if supporting someone and being there for someone and listening to someone else is one thing, but allowing them to engage us with dysfunctional behavior, yeah, that's not okay. That's enabling them to continue to do it. 
So setting that boundary and saying, you know, I love you and I wish the best for you, but I'm not going to do this dysfunction dance with you. So if you insist on doing this dysfunction dance, you're going to have to pick another partner because it's not going to be me. Yeah. And I care about you and I hope you, you know, I hope you find someone. I maybe give you some names of some therapists and something, but I'm not going to engage in this dysfunctional behavior with you. And that is a very good thing to do because then you are, you don't become an enabler yeah. to that dysfunctional behavior. And so then they're like, oh my gosh. And then that might give them enough motivation to seek out a therapist because you're no longer participating in that because that's dysfunctional. Yeah. So let me ask you really quickly before we wrap up for today, mm -hmm. you had a, a question that you posed on the Podmatch site that I was curious about. It says, what is intersectionality and how does it play a role in your life? That was one of the questions that you said that you prepared to answer. What, what mm -hmm. is intersectionality? Intersectionality, for what I think, <laughs> and there is a definition, but my definition is just that all of our identities and some people say like your social identities, like gender your race i mean i think it's every identity so you know all aspects of yourself things that you can think of they make up you um and all those different aspects of your life or your identities are going to impact your mental health different are going to impact your gender different um and impact your race different and of course every identity like disability veterans uh, indigenous all of it so for me it's like i share a lot of intersectional identities being hispanic being queer having a disability um, not just mental health but you know like learning and so all of that has kind of shaped my life and also presented certain barriers that other people may not have experienced. Mm -hmm. Like for me, it's like I'm, I'm neurodiverse, so I have a hard time concentrating sometimes. So like going through school, that was a barrier I experienced. And that attributed to more mental health problems. You know what I mean? Because since I was struggling in school, of course, it's going to make me feel bad about myself. And it, it made me feel like I was incompetent, made me feel like I wasn't good enough. And so that impacted my mental health. And again, it, it, could, it could be anything. And, you know, I come from a middle class background, but someone from someone who comes from a lower class background, that identity could impact what services of mental health they get, how they view mental health, their environment. So that's why I think intersectionality is, which is all the layers and identities of yourself, they kind of create different dynamics. So even if even if you have, again, like two white women, they may have very different identities elsewhere and that that impacts their mental health or their identities differently and how they're seen in society. I hope that makes sense. It does. And I like it. I like the fact that I, what I'm hearing you say is, is honoring and respecting all the different identities that make yeah. us who we are and that mm -hmm. the intersection of them, the intersection of all of these different identities where they intersect, that's who we are. In, yeah. that, in that center, in that hub, it's almost like spokes coming out from a hub. Mm -hmm. And we are all of these things. And to really respect and honor all of those things, not only in ourselves, but in other people, respecting and honoring that who we're interacting with. There have, there's, a, there's several different areas that create who they are. Mm -hmm. and, the, and their identity is the intersection of all of those and, mm -hmm. and to try to respect that. So Zane, let me make sure that my listeners, if they want to hear more about you, if they want to connect with you more, where do you want them to go? Where where, where do I send them? I mean, of course, hopefully y'all got social media, but because <laughs> I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, but I don't really use those platforms. So if you want to message me, LinkedIn, Instagram, message me. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> awesome. 
Awesome. Well, Zane, I, I really appreciate you coming and spending your time and your willingness to be vulnerable and open and authentic on my podcast and really kind of helping my listeners really benefit from your wisdom and your experience. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again for having me. <laughs> All right, guys, I know you have heard something today that has been inspiring. And you know what? Maybe you have a friend or a relative or a coworker that you're thinking, oh my gosh, they have got to hear what Zane Landon has to say. So take, you know, copy and, and paste the link of the podcast through text, through email, put it on your favorite social media sites, put it out there so we can really grow and grow our Phoenix and Flame community so we can reach out and continue to support one another and realize that we're all, we're all going through this together. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. This is Dana on Phoenix and Flame.